Good. Well, earlier this year, I spent a day at a convent in Michigan. Um, it's the mother house for a Dominican group of sisters called the Dominican Sisters of Mercy, Mother of the Eucharist. Must. Dominican Sisters of Mary, Mother of the Eucharist. And uh, it's a group of 140 women who live in community in this house in rural Michigan. Um, folks who are committing their lives to serving as nuns, as we would traditionally view them, uh, are, are, it's a declining group, especially in the United States. Uh, it's severely declining, in fact. However, this group uh, has grown from four to 140 sisters in less than 20 years. They're, they're on fire. They're growing like crazy. So I went to visit them because I wanted to hear, I wanted to meet with the person who is in charge of the formation of the novices. These are young women in their early 20s who are in the first year of considering making a lifelong commitment to this kind of life, to life in a community with a bunch of others uh, and serving in their case as, as teachers. And so the average age of the, the women in this community is 33. The average age of these 25 novices is like 21. And I wanted to talk to the person who was in charge of helping them to discern whether in fact it was God who was calling them to give their life in this pretty radical way uh, to the church. The older woman who personally oversaw the process was sharp and clear and so kind. We got to have lunch together. Her eyes reflected this deep passion for Jesus and for souls. And I felt honored to sit with her and ask her questions about commitment and discernment and challenges and barriers to commitment and this ongoing process of pursuing a life of stability. Much of what she said was important and valuable. I filled up several pages in my journal with her insights, but one thing she said caught me completely by surprise. Do you know why young women today have such a hard time with this life? She asked, extending her hands like this to mean the convent, the community, the church, the life of celibacy, the life of obedience. Do you know why young women today have such a hard time with this life, she said? And I just shook my head and I waited for her to respond. <laughs> she said, it's because they don't understand marriage. Not what I expected a 65-year-old nun to say. Because they don't understand marriage. <laughs> Doing a short series of teachings to kick off the fall called Becoming One. This is not a marriage series. This is a series about how Christians are called to be in relationship with others. Here's the basic premise of what we're talking about. Near the end of Paul's letter to the Christians in a town called Ephesus, we refer to this letter as Ephesians, and I'm talking about chapter 5 if you want to look it up. <clears throat> Paul spends some time instructing the community in Ephesus about marriage. At least it appears that he's talking to them about marriage, and in a sense he is, but a careful read makes something else very clear. 
Paul is ultimately talking about something more than marriage. He's talking about something deeper than marriage. He's using marriage as a metaphor for the church's relationship with Jesus. That's what he's ultimately talking about. Paul's giving instructions for Christian husbands and for Christian wives and for Christian marriage. But at the same time, he's talking about Christ and the church you think he's talking about marriage, you think he's giving instruction for the marriage relationship, but he himself clarifies in verse 32 of chapter 5 that his primarily he's talking about the ultimate relationship, not the marriage relationship. He's talking about the ultimate relationship, which is the relationship between Christ and the church, between us and Jesus is what he's talking about. Paul, who by the way never married, is trying to communicate something about what it's like to be in a real-life, committed relationship with God. And in order to explain that, which is a pretty challenging topic to explain, right? How do I be in a real-life, committed relationship with God? In order to explain that, he's decided to use the familiar territory of marriage, which is brilliant because everybody understands marriage. I didn't expect you to laugh. It's also very risky, isn't it? And that's what you're picking up on. It's risky because as Sister Joseph Andrew said to me at the convent, they don't understand marriage. It's risky because we don't understand marriage. So Paul's brilliant because he's using the most powerful metaphor for a relationship with God, and it's not his idea, it's a metaphor that's used all throughout Scripture to bring some sense of form to the idea that a person could actually have a relationship with the divine. What is that like? Well, throughout Scripture, marriage has been held up as the primary metaphor for that relationship. So, in a sense, Paul's being brilliant here and faithful to the historical Scripture, but he's also opening himself up to all kinds of misunderstandings and confusion and a ton of criticism with this passage because... For many, the marriage metaphor has been broken to pieces and it is no longer helpful. And tragically for some, the marriage metaphor may be broken to the point that it's actually a harmful metaphor. For instance, Paul talks about, he leads off with uh, verse 21 in chapter 5 of Ephesians. He leads off with, husbands and wives, you should submit to one another out of mutual reverence for Christ. You even say the word submit in our culture and it's, it becomes clouded with the abuse of power and the feeling of being controlled. This is a challenging uh, topic and a challenging passage because the metaphor itself has become so broken for us. So we have one of two choices. We can ditch the metaphor. We can say, ah, marriage is a mess. It, it, it rarely works well. It's so messy. Everybody's, you know, it's not very healthy. I almost know no examples of health, and people don't stay married anymore. So we could ditch the metaphor, or we could try to restore it. We could try to restore it. Acknowledging the fact that the metaphor is broken, probably more importantly, acknowledging the fact that we are broken. We could imagine and pray and work hard to recapture something of the essence of the beauty of marriage, of this 
uniquely intense, uniquely intimate, uniquely indefinite relationship called marriage that's actually designed to teach us the truth about God. What do I mean it's actually designed to teach us the truth about God? I mean that the design and purpose of all relationships is to reflect the love of God for one another. This is clearly what Christians are called to do in all relationships is to reflect the love of God for the other. Relationships, especially for Christians, matter because they're sacramental. They're sacramental. They're not ordinary. They have the power to teach Share, reveal, shape others with the very power and presence and love of God. You and I learn about God. Our understanding of God is shaped through our relationships with others, especially those that we're, that we're close to, most close to, like our community, our friends, our family. And if we're married, our spouse, massively influential in our understanding of who God is. So the big idea last week, in case you missed it, was this. Marriage is not 50-50. It's not a contract. A contract is a conditional promise. It's a deal. It's a bargain. If you don't hold up your end of the bargain, I'm released from my end of the bargain. It's not 50-50. Marriage is not 50-50. Marriage is 100%, 100%. And you're responsible for your 100%. From a biblical standpoint, marriage is 100%, 100%. Paul writes to the Ephesians about mutual submission, about total surrender of your life to another, a specific other, through acts of service, and if necessary, death. I mean, it's intense. Why does he do that? Because Jesus gives 100% unconditionally. That's his foundation, he calls us to give ourselves 100% to another because Jesus gave himself 100% to us. Jesus loves us unconditionally. It's not a contract. Okay, you do your part of the deal, I'll do my part of the deal. No, no. It's, it's an unconditional covenant is the word. Christian relationships, are, especially marriage, are supposed to reflect that. They're designed to reflect that. So the very pointed challenge from last week was this, and I put it in the first person in an effort to just make it uh, land um, as effectively as possible. This is what I said. I said, I'm loved, I'm called to love Carmen, my wife, unconditionally, because Jesus loves my wife unconditionally, and it's my job to help her believe that. I'm called to love my kids unconditionally because Jesus loves my kids unconditionally. And I'm here to help them believe that that's true. We, as a church, are called to love one another unconditionally. This is radical from a cultural perspective. We're called to love one another unconditionally why? Because Jesus loves us unconditionally, and how will we ever even have a chance of grasping even a little glimpse of that truth if we don't demonstrate it at some level here in the church to one another? This is our only hope of actually taking this theological truth and bringing it down into our souls to where we know it's true. So as I said last week, this is a responsibility that if it doesn't, overwhelm you, it should. <laughs> it should. This is a responsibility. If it doesn't overwhelm you, it should. Uh, and I would add this today. 
This is a possibility that if it doesn't compel you, it could. This is compelling to me. This is compelling. I'm well aware of the difficulty of the challenge. Believe me. Uh, someone said to me last week, and they were kind of pushing me to push me, uh, but they said, you're telling me I'm supposed to go home and I'm supposed to love my wife like God loves my wife. And I said, no, actually, no. I'm not telling you that. I'm reading Paul, the apostle. I think he's clearly telling you that. I think the teachings of the New Testament are crystal clear. We're to demonstrate the love of God for everybody, especially those to whom we've made a promise, like a marriage promise, right? No, I, as a follower of Jesus, we are called to follow Jesus. That's what we're called to do. So if Jesus loves the world unconditionally, this is not some like effort for me to be especially extreme or radical. I'm simply, and I think it's clear, I'm trying to just reflect what the Bible is saying about the way we should interact with other people. It's uncommon, yes. It's difficult for sure. But no, I'm not, I'm not telling you that. I think, I think God is calling us. I think it's clear that God is calling us to love as Christ loved. Those who follow Jesus will walk as Jesus walked, John says. And yes, this is remarkably challenging. And yes, this is remarkably difficult. And it can be really frustrating, but it's also remarkably powerful. You want to, get, you want to pursue a spirituality that makes a difference in real life? This is it. This is remarkably powerful. Somebody said to me, you know, I'm going to go home today, and my wife is going to know that I heard that message. <laughs> and I said, I know, I know. I'm going to go home today, and my wife's going to know that I preached that message, okay? So I'm with you. I'm here. <clears throat> so let me quickly point out two common errors related to what we're talking about. It's important to, I think, to identify, well, we could run off the rail that way, or we could run off the rail that way. We want to kind of stay within the circle of biblical truth. One common mistake is to replace God with anything or anyone, no person, not your best friend, not your father, not your mother, not even your spouse can take the place of God in your life. If you're looking to another person to perfectly fulfill your needs, you will be utterly disappointed because you weren't meant to find fulfillment, peace, rest in them. You were meant to find fulfillment, peace, and rest in God. No person can take the place of God. So if you place God-sized expectations on someone like your spouse or your parent, you're going to be constantly disappointed, and frankly, you'll be pretty frustrated with them the whole time because they're not God. They're, they're not meant to fill the role of God in your life. And tragically, and I want to be really delicate here, if you'll be graceful with me here, but if you allow someone else to take the place in your life that God is meant to take in your life, you will very likely be devastated um, because no one escapes death. And it's so tragic to be grieving with a person about the loss of a spouse or a loved one and hear them say, she was my everything. Now she's gone. You know, I want to gently say she was never meant to be your everything. So we can err in one direction by saying this relationship is all that matters. I think that's an exaggeration. 
We can also err in the other direction by saying this relationship doesn't really matter at all. It's just sort of an ordinary kind of a, a contractual agreement. That is to say it's a mistake to avoid the challenge in some very practical ways to reflect the love of God uh, to others. It's a mistake to say, okay, well, this whole idea of helping others through my words and my actions to actually experience the love of God, I'm going to opt out of that. That's a mistake. You can't opt out. Okay, you can't. It's not an option. You can't opt out. Um, you will influence others' perceptions of God. Uh, I will, for better or worse, in a way that is true or false, the way I treat my boys will shape the way they understand God the Father. It just will. I can't do anything about that other than to embrace it and pray for the grace to do the best I can. So, you will be a help or you will be a hindrance, but you can't just opt out of the whole idea that I'm an influencer. Because you are, especially for those in whom or with whom you're in close relationship. So to repeat, we can err in one direction by saying, this relationship is everything to me, even spiritually. We can err in the other direction by saying, this relationship doesn't matter spiritually. Because it, it does. So we want to be aware and careful to stay away from these two common errors. But then here in the center of biblical, balanced biblical truth, how do we even begin? Last week was really a lot about the theology behind Christian relationship. I really want to try to push it this morning towards a practical uh, implication of this. How can we, with any sense of integrity, move toward loving others as God loves them? How can we, with any sense of authenticity, love your wife as Christ loved the church? How can we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ? I mean, these are huge concepts. Well, here's a place to start. And here's the big idea for the day. It's real simple. You can become a safe harbor for others. You can become a safe harbor for others. You can become a safe harbor for your community, a safe harbor for your family, a safe harbor for your spouse if you're married, Reflecting the love of God to others encompasses an almost unlimited amount of things, doesn't it? But one of them, one way, and I think it's a very practical and powerful way is, uh, to, to, to put this into practice, is to become a safe harbor for others. Here's what I mean. Over and over in the Bible, one of the most common ways that people like you and me experience the love of God, the heart of God, is through God's protective nurturing goodness. I'd encourage you to write that down. Through God's protective, encouraging, nurturing goodness. God is frequently experienced, in other words, as a safe harbor. Here are some examples from the Psalms where people put this reality in the form of a prayer. From Psalm 3, but you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head high. From Psalm 18, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. My God is my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation. Horn in the Psalms is a symbol of strength. He's the strength of my salvation. He's my stronghold. Psalm 28, the Lord is my strength and my shield, my heart trusts in him and I am helped. See how we've moved from the physical to the emotional? My heart trusts in him and I am helped. 
Psalm 46, the whole psalm is beautiful and it's on this theme, begins, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Psalm 61 begins as a cry for help. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the ends of the earth I call to you. I call as my heart grows faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. And then it continues, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the foe. I long to dwell in your tent forever and take refuge in the shelter of your wings. The idea, uh, the idea of God as a safe harbor is all throughout the Psalms. It's all throughout the wisdom of the Proverbs. One example, Proverbs 18, the name of the Lord is a fortified tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. And then we hear Jesus pick up this theme in the way he describes his ministry and his role to others. In Matthew 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Jesus is saying, I want to be your safe harbor. In John 10, Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd. As the good shepherd. In Luke's gospel, Jesus depicts God the Father as a good father who's willing to welcome back his sons, even the prideful one, even the one who's wasted everything with reckless living. God is this good father wanting to welcome. He's a safe harbor. You can look at every book in the Bible, almost, and pick up the strong theme of God as a safe harbor. The heart of God, protective, nurturing goodness. Protective, nurturing goodness. It's clear that people have long looked to God for protection, and I'm not just saying protection from war, but also emotional protection, like protection in seasons of grief and protection in seasons of fear. Our modern culture has picked up, I think, on this human longing, and we make a big deal of safe places and safe people. You've probably heard that. You've probably received some helpful training about that. Um, It seems to me to be the primary thought behind the idea of a safe person or a safe place is this is, there's no harm here. You will be protected from harm here. So if this is a safe place to talk, it means that those who are being critical of you can't hear what you're saying, so you don't have to worry about being harmed by them. Or if we say to one another, hey, I'm a safe person for you to talk to, what we mean is I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to like evaluate everything that you're saying. I'm not going to criticize you. And I think this is important, right? I think this is valuable. I I also think it's a pretty minimal definition of what safe could be, especially when you compare it to what the writers of the Psalms are talking about. Won't be harmed is a pretty meager description of what Jesus means when he says, I'm a good shepherd. He's talking about way more than just, I'm not going to hurt you, right? When safety language like refuge and strong tower and shield and shadow of your wings and good shepherd are used for God, it's speaking of more than just some sterile wall of protection. Speaking of the nurturing and healing, restorative goodness of God. So to go with the analogy, if you're a ship, you're not meant to stay in the harbor, right? You're meant for the sea, but you're meant to be on adventure. You're meant to be on mission. You were built for a purpose, but the harbor is the place to which you will return, right? Your harbor is is your home. 
Yes, it's a place of protection from the storm, but it's also a place of rebuilding. It's also a place of being refueled. So to describe God as a safe harbor is to say that God is the one to whom we can go, not just for protection from the storm, thank God, that's true, but in addition to that, there's also healing that is available in the presence of God. There's restoration that is available in the presence of God. There's strength for the continued journey. And my point this morning is simply to suggest that one way, and I would say it's a very important way, and it's also a very practical and doable way for us to reflect the love of God to our community, to our family, to our spouse if we're married, is to be for them a safe harbor. That's one way we can reflect the truth of God to others. We can be a safe harbor. It's to reflect this aspect of God's character. Yes, it's an overwhelming responsibility, but it is a place to start, in my view. Become a safe harbor. And I would define that in simplest terms. Not just as a safe place, friends, but as a good place. Not just as a safe place, as a good place to be. So by God's grace... I want to hear my children say to me, whether in word or deed, I want to hear them, I want to, I want to perceive them saying to me, Dad, it's good to be with you. It's good to be with you. I feel safe here. I feel cared for when I'm with you. By God's grace, I want to become the friend and the family member to whom others can say, it's good to be with you. I feel welcomed with you. I feel recharged after we talk. I feel able to continue on. And by God's grace, I want my wife to believe it is good to be with you. It is good to be with you. I want her to feel seen and heard and known and valued by me. I want her to feel at home with me. I want her to be filled with confidence to go out into the world, pursuing her calling, restoring all things in the way that she's been built to do. And then I want her to feel like she can come home and be appreciated and known and protected and more than that, nurtured and loved. I think that one of the most powerful ways that we can love others like God loves them, is to be a safe harbor. We can be for others the person that they say, it's so good to be with you. It's good to be with you. Some of us, our biggest hindrance to even stepping into this is that we've just, we, we haven't been. We haven't been a safe harbor. And we become consumed with uh, the guilt and the disappointment and the pain. We should acknowledge the sin of the past and we should move to the future. That's what we should do. We should acknowledge the sin of the past and we should then take it a day at a time. Uh, if you say to me, I haven't been a safe harbor, I would say, you can be this afternoon. This afternoon, you can be a safe harbor. Uh, you can be tonight. You can be tomorrow morning. You can take it a day at a time. Resolving to be a safe place, and more than that, a good place to be.
Let me end with this story. <clears throat> uh, we had the privilege, Carmen and I, of being mentored when we were dating by a couple. And they were um, wonderful and powerful. They still are uh, such sweet people. They taught us so much about ministry, about sharing life with people, um, about marriage and relationships, about how to pray, about how to read the word. They just taught us so much about life. It was a privilege to have mentors like these. And for a couple of years, they mentored us in, in the settings of like lunches and you know, meetings. But then it went to another level because for the several months before we married, Carmen moved in with them. She lived with them. And so I was over there all the time. And we we're having dinners at their house and we're helping them clean up their house. And we're seeing what we'd seen from a safe distance. Now we're seeing up close and, and personal and real. And it just, it just seemed to get better. I mean, it was astounding to me. And one day, we're in a busy space, lots of people, and Lyle approaches Mary. And other people weren't aware of it, but I was close enough that I saw it. And he comes up to her and he says, I need to, I need to ask for your forgiveness. I've been super critical lately. Uh, I've spoken harshly to you. I don't want to do that. Um, but I, I have been so short with you. And um, would you forgive me? And she looked at him and she put her hand on his cheek. And she drew in close and she said, just be my safe harbor. That's what she said. Just be my safe harbor. Nobody saw it. Carmen's close by. I look at her. She looks at me. We don't say anything. It was like, this is a holy moment. We almost didn't feel like we should be there. But what I thought when I saw her was, this is how it's done. <laughs> this is how it's done. Right? This is how you embrace the call to reveal and reflect the love of God for somebody else. This is how you ask for and receive forgiveness when you fail, which you will on the regular. This is how you don't ditch the standard, but in fact you lean into the standard to become for someone else the reflection of the very love of God. Right? This is how you lean into that and your relationships become holy in this high level of expectation and experience for a relationship. Friends, this is how you become one. Amen? Amen. So God, I pray for grace for us as we take steps towards what seems to many of us, I think at least to me, to be just an almost impossible standard. And yet such a compelling possibility that I cannot let it go. You have loved us like this. Would you enable us to in some way love others like this? I pray for the grace in ways that are so specific and practical that they really are uh, on one level just individual. It's going to look differently for each of us. But I pray for the grace to be a safe harbor for those who are looking to us whether they realize it or not, to help them believe what's true about you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.